Uh, when you study the life of Jesus, there are so many things that become clear to you, but one of the things that I think uh, becomes obvious when you look at the life of Jesus, he loved stories. And, and more than just loving to hear good stories, which I think he did, more than anything, Jesus loved to tell good stories. Uh, matter of fact, people who don't even follow Jesus and, and don't consider themselves believers uh, in Jesus, uh, they confess that he was a masterful storyteller. And, and when you read through the Gospels, and if you have red letters in your Bible, you'll find out that so much of the red letters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is Jesus telling stories. And he would tell stories about everything. Uh, he was trying to connect with his audience by telling memorable stories that communicated unforgettable truths. That's how Jesus taught. That was kind of Jesus' style. He was a storyteller. So he, he would talk about wise investing. He, he would talk about workers and wages and virgins and lamps and seeds and harvest. And, and it just goes on and on and on of the stories that Jesus would tell. And if we were all honest, we would say, yeah, there's some stories Jesus told that I can remember. Uh, you remember from Sunday school, you remember them from sermons you've heard over the years, and, and maybe from, you know, good night stories with your children that you told them over and over again. But there are some stories of Jesus that, unfortunately, we don't all remember. It's like, yes, I think I remember something like that, but I'm not sure. Uh, so there's some stories that Jesus told that we remember, but there are some that Jesus told that we don't remember. But I think there's one story. Uh, that if you've ever heard it, you've never forgotten it. There's one story of Jesus that I think is greater than all the other stories that Jesus ever told. Jesus told this story one day when he was surrounded by two very different groups of people. And this is how Luke recorded the events of that particular day concerning these two groups of people. He said, now the tax collectors and the sinners now, if you're not familiar with the New Testament and the tax collectors and the sinners, uh, these were the rule breakers. These were the impure. These were the outcasts, the immoral, the amoral, uh, the unclean. Uh, these were the folks who refused to live by conventional codes of ethics or morality. Uh, they had departed from traditional ideas about morality. They, they were just living their own lives, and so they were rule breakers. They colored outside the lines. And because of it, uh, they had been excommunicated or uninvited from all the holy places. Uh, God's holy. Uh, if you're following God the way you're supposed to, then you're holy. And uh, for those who were like tax collectors and sinners, they were unholy. So if you're unholy, you're not welcome where the holy people are. And that, that was kind of the idea of the day. And the message that tax collectors and sinners had grown up all their lives hearing was that God hates sin, God hates sin, God hates sin. This group, they were very much acquainted with the fact that they were sinners. They were very much acquainted with the idea that, hey, we are sinners. We own it. And so they had heard the message, God hates sin, and they, many of them believed that God hated them because they were sinners. And, and this particular group of people, these tax collectors and sinners, they had been beaten and bruised by religion. Religion didn't want anything to do with them. Religion said God has no place for you. But here's the thing that we're, we're introduced to time and time again in, in the Gospels, in particular here, because this is really important to what we're going to talk about. They love Jesus. This group loved Jesus. And the verb tense here, it says they were all gathering. It means that this was an ongoing pattern. That Jesus, in some way, when he talked to them or talked about them when they weren't around, the way that he looked at them and treated them, they really believed that Jesus was their friend. And Jesus was their friend. They really believed that Jesus loved them. And Jesus did love them. And even though they didn't share Jesus' views or values, they felt comfortable with Jesus. And even though they didn't share Jesus' views and values, Jesus felt comfortable with them. And so every time I read a verse like this, uh, I always ask myself, why is it that tax collectors and sinners felt comfortable with Jesus in the first century, but people who would fit into the category of tax collectors and sinners in the 21st century don't feel comfortable around church people? 
And I think that by and large, the answer is really quite simple and clear. It's because the church in modern day America has not been a whole lot like Jesus. Uh, and because we've not been a lot like Jesus, the tax collectors and the sinners, you know, those who like to color outside the lines, don't live by traditional values or codes of conduct, they just don't feel comfortable around us. And, and we haven't felt comfortable around them. But Jesus, he introduced us to a better way where tax collectors and sinners love being with him and he loved being with them, even though their values and views were very much different. And, and so that was important. That was one of the groups there that day. Another group, uh, Luke goes on to say, was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he says, that day, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered. Because that's what religious people love to do. If you've ever met a religious person or a church person, you know, a career church attender, they like to mutter a lot. You know, they're just not happy. They're, they're just complaining. They, they've always got somebody who's doing it not right, somebody who's messed up, somebody, you know. They're muttering. And here's what they're muttering. This man, Jesus, welcomes sinners and eats with them. In their mind, the problem was this, sinners like Jesus and Jesus like sinners. And to the religious people, Jesus didn't condemn them, so that must mean he condoned them, which means that Jesus is soft on sin, that Jesus, he's a compromiser. He's made, you know, the standard too low because he's, he welcomes them. He's, he's like comfy around them and they're comfortable around him. And so those were the two groups that were in the crowd on this particular day when Jesus, I think, would tell his most popular story of all time. Now, before we get to that, these two groups, obviously, they didn't like each other. And the reason they didn't like each other was because they didn't think they had a lot in common. You tend to like people you, you feel like you have a lot in common with. They didn't feel like they had anything in common with each other. And because of it, they just didn't like each other that much. And here's what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to show them that they're a lot like each other. They're more like each other than they want to admit or want to believe. And, and Jesus is going to reveal this to them by telling them a story. And the story that he's going to tell is the greatest story I think Jesus ever told. Matter of fact, Charles Dickens called the story that Jesus told that day the greatest short story that's ever been told. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, hey, I agree with Charles Dickens. I think it's the greatest short story that's ever been told. Shakespeare borrowed from this short story in Henry IV and the, the, Virgin of Menace, or, uh, the, the, Virgin, uh, the Merchant of Venice. There we go. That was an inappropriate application of speaking in tongues right there. I'm just telling you. It's not the way you do it. All right. So Shakespeare borrowed from it. All these people throughout history, they, they look at this and they say, man, this is one of the greatest stories ever told. One particular person was inspired by Jesus' story, maybe more than any other artist or writer or composer in history. And we find that this story begins in Amsterdam in 1668. And in Amsterdam, 1668, it starts the story of my favorite painting in the world. I'm not what I would call an art connoisseur. I'm not a lover of all things fine art. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. Uh, but you can stick with me and know that I'm not one of those people. But, but I, I love certain pictures just like you do. And in 1668 in Amsterdam, nearly 1600 years before Jesus told the story that he told that day to the religious folks and to the tax collectors and the sinners, there was a famed artist by the name of Rembrandt. And Rembrandt was within a year of the end of his life. He's an aged guy. And towards the end of his life, within a year of when he will die, he will pick up his tools and he will make what many consider one of the greatest works of art in his life. And not only in his life, but in all the world. And it's been called a, a painting that overflows with emotion. Uh, and when I think of it, and as I've looked at it, you know, over the years, it, it really is the iconic retelling 
of the story that Jesus told that day to a group of sinners and religious people. And the name of the painting is called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And this is a copy and a print of that particular painting right here. And you have the prodigal, the younger son, in the story that Jesus told coming home and his head's been shaved and he's emaciated and his, you know, his robe is torn and he's lacking sandals and there's the father that welcomes him back and here's the elder brother and some other people that, that are looking on. Rembrandt, and I know you're wondering, why do I care about this? But trust me, this helps us get an idea of, of the story that Jesus told that day. Rembrandt had a fascination with the story of the prodigal son, and in particular, the younger brother in the story of the prodigal son. And as art historians have looked at the life of Rembrandt, they say towards the end of his life, his eyesight was failing, but perhaps he never saw this story more clearly, nor did he see his life more clearly. And that's kind of how death works. The closer you get to death, the more clearly you see life. And so this particular painting, the return of the prodigal son has been called the final statement of a tumultuous and tormented life. And not speaking of the prodigal's life, but speaking of Rembrandt's life, because his life mirrored that of the younger brother. And if you ever do any reading about him, and I'm not sure why you would, but uh, you've got life and you've got a job and you've got kids and married and you're trying to get married, you know, so I understand. But his life was really up and down. It was all over the place. He was brash. He was self-confident. He was overly arrogant. He, he was kind of sensual. He, he spent too much money in too many places. He ended up in bankruptcy multiple times in the course of his life. And, and so he had a fascinating nation uh, with the prodigal son. Matter of fact, he, he sketched him many different times in, in different ways. 30 years before this particular painting, he sketched what is called the prodigal son in the brothel. All right, the prodigal son in the brothel. And here is the prodigal son looking much different. He's got hair, he's got some weight on him. And Rembrandt, he painted himself as the prodigal because that's what he often did. And this is his wife and there he is. He's toasting to us with this taunting look to say, hey, look at me, I'm living the time of my life. Life doesn't get any better than this. Look at me. And with sexually greedy eyes, he's smiling at us and he's got his hand on his wife who's you know, substituting as a prostitute there in the picture. And he says, hey, this is living life right here. This is a toast to pleasure and a life of no restraints. This was the prodigal 30 years before Rembrandt painted this picture. A lot had changed in the way that he saw the prodigal in 30 years. At the end of his life, the prodigal was the shell of the man that he used to be, and Rembrandt was much the shell of the man that he used to be. He had lost multiple children to death, and he'd lost a wife to death, and in the end, he lost his favorite son to death. And so when you look at these pictures, and it gives you an image of the story that Jesus told that day, as people have studied this that know more about art than we do, this is, this is what they've said about it. The moment of receiving and forgiving in the stillness of its composition, this return of the prodigal son, it lasts without end. Everybody say without end. The movement of the father and the son speaks to something that passes not, but it lasts forever. Which is to say, this is an embrace that ends not. This is forgiveness, this is grace that ends not. Another person said it this way, the group of father and son outwardly almost motionless, but inwardly all the more moved. The story deals not with human love of an earthly father. What is meant and represented here is the divine love and the mercy and its power to transform life to death. This was Rembrandt's iconic bookshelf bookends of the life of the younger son in the prodigal story. He goes from living life to the fullest to being the shell of the person that he used to be. And he captures only one part of the story that Jesus told that day. This is how Jesus told the story. 
There was a man who had two sons. How many sons? Two. two. How many sons? Two. two. Not one. And that's oftentimes where we get the story wrong. This is a story that we've all heard, but many of us, if we try to tell this story, we, sh we stop short of telling the whole story. This is a story about a man who had two sons. How many people, how many different groups of people were in the crowd listening to Jesus that day? Two. There were the tax collectors and the sinners and the religious Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So there were two groups listening to Jesus that day and Jesus said, let me tell you a story about a man who had two sons because one son is gonna represent the tax collectors and sinners in this story and the other son is gonna represent the religious Pharisees and the teachers of the law in the story. So let me tell you a story about two sons. And so Jesus launches into this very emotional story and everybody they're on the edge of their seat and they're listening into the story. And, and this is the story that you remember. The younger son goes up to the father and it's very emotional. And oftentimes we just miss the emotion of it because we've heard it so many times. But he goes up to the father and the youngest son looks at the father and says, Dad, basically, I can't get my inheritance until you die. So I really wish you would go ahead and die. But since you're not cooperating and dying anytime soon, I want what's mine now. Now, Again, we've heard this and, and it, it, we just miss the emotion of it. And for those of us who are parents or grandparents, you know, aunts, uncles have special relationship with, you know, a special child or a younger person in your life. I mean, think about the pain of this, that your son or daughter comes up to you and says, you know what? I don't care about you. I just wish you go ahead and die. And if you die, I really don't care. I just want what's coming to me when you're dead. And think about that. Think about the, the broken heart that you would have. Think about the pain of that. And that's what the son did. The son basically said, I wish you were dead. I don't care about you, I don't love you. When you're dead, I'm not gonna miss you. So why don't you go ahead and give me what's mine so I can leave? And what Jesus introduces everybody in the crowd to is this younger brother who rejects home, who rejects the father, who breaks from tradition, who breaks more not to go out and sow wild oats, but this is a breaking from treasured values. This is the breaking of a legacy, a sacred legacy, which is passed down from generation to generation and generation. Wealth that has been accumulated over generations. And all of a sudden this younger son, this ungrateful son, this son which hates his father, says, Dad, I want what's mine. So since I can't have it until you're dead, can we just pretend that you're dead to me? And that's the story and everybody's listening and all the, the tax collectors and the sinners, they're over there like, oh my gosh. And the religious Pharisees, they're listening and they're thinking, oh my gosh. And everybody's hearing something different. See, when you come and you hear a sermon on a Sunday and you hear me or somebody else like me get up here and talk, some of you hear one thing, some of you hear another thing, some of you think I'm saying this, some of you think I'm saying that. Uh, some of you agree, some of you disagree. Some of you anticipate this or you anticipate that. Sometimes you're surprised, sometimes you're not. That was happening in the crowd that day. And everybody's hearing something different. The tax collectors and the sinners, they're anticipating an ending. They're anticipating where this is going. The Pharisees, the religious folks, they're anticipating an ending to this story. And so here's what the father does. He, he does the unthinkable. He liquidates a third of the estate because in those days, the older brother got two thirds. <laughs> it paid to be older. If you were the older brother, you got two thirds. I'm, I am the older brother. I think we ought to bring back this biblical practice personally. <laughs> Two thirds went to the older brother, a third went to the younger brother. So the father, he does what's unthinkable. He liquidates a third of the estate, most of which were real estate holdings. Some of which may have been, you know, some monies that have been accumulated, but whatever it was, he liquidated a third of the estate and everybody's thinking, oh my gosh, what kind of father would do that? This is not what we're expecting the father to do. 
But here's what the father does. He loves the youngest son enough to let him make his own choices. And this is what Jesus is teaching us about God because the father in the story represents God. There was a man who had two sons. And the man, the father, represents God. And here's what Jesus is saying. Let me tell you something about God. God will give you the freedom to make your own choices. Even when those choices are going to cost you dearly. Even when my choices cost me dearly. The father doesn't try to keep him. The father doesn't try to talk him out of it. He knows he can't. He lets the young son do what he wants to do. Because the father wants a relationship with the son. And as much as the father chooses to have a relationship with the son, it also requires that the son makes a choice to have a relationship with the father. And in the absence of the younger son making a choice to have, an absent, you know, to have a relationship with the father, he lets him leave home. And so he does. And like the prodigal in the brothel, he goes and he lives it up. He says, not long after that, the younger son, he got together all that he had and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth with wild living. Now, I will say this, but I don't have time to point it out, but he'd been thinking and fixated about the distant country long before he ever asked his father to cash him out so that he could go to the distant country. He'd been imagining how attractive and how free and how incredible. A place where he didn't have to live under anybody else's rules of right and wrong. A place where he didn't have to live under anybody else's authority. That was the distant country. And of course, you and I understand how attractive it can be to make up our own ideas of right and wrong and to live in a reality where we have no one to be accountable to except ourselves. to live the way that we want to live. And that was the distant country. The distant country was where everything that the father considered right was wrong. Where everything that the father had taught was disregarded. That's what the distant country meant. That everything holy had been disregarded. And so he had all this on his mind when he thought about the distant country. And so he goes off. And it was the time of his life. Until it wasn't. And the pleasure became pain. The ecstasy became empty. And what was very sweet became very bitter. Sure, it was fun for a while. If sin's not fun, as someone has said, you're just not doing it right. Sin's a lot of fun. And so he was having the time of his life until he wasn't. He spent all, you know the story, a famine hit. He ended up bankrupt. He ended, with, ended up without anybody to help him. And so he ended up doing the worst thing that a Jewish person could do, which was helping take care of pigs. And everybody in the story is like, oh my gosh, th this has gone to the absolute extreme. And that was Jesus' point. So he ends up in the hog pen. And he looks at the hogs and he looks at what they're eating and he's thinking to himself, I'm hungry and what those pigs are eating, I think I would eat. And now he's as low as anybody can get. There's no other bottom to hit. He is at the bottom of the bottom. And this is what Jesus said. That's when he came to his senses. In this series, we've been talking about how freedom begins with honesty. This is where the freedom of the prodigal son began. It didn't feel like freedom. It didn't feel like the beginning of a new beginning, but it was because he was getting honest. He was getting honest with himself. Getting honest with himself is gonna allow him to be honest with his dad. And so this is the moment that things began to change. Now, for you, things may not change immediately. It may not feel like anything got better, but when you get honest with you, that's when freedom begins. That's the beginning of a new beginning because now he knows what he didn't know when he was at the father's house. 
Now he knows that there's no place like the father's house. But he couldn't know that until he was no longer at the father's house. And so he comes up with a plan. He comes up with a strategy because he's pretty resourceful. He's a pretty bold guy. I mean, he was the guy that went to his father and said, I kind of wish you were dead. Give me, give me what's mine. So he comes up with a speech. And this is what he says. He says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. That's honest. It's honesty. I am no longer worthy to be called of your son. That's emotion. That's how he felt. Right? I'm no longer worthy to be your son because that's what he would expect in that culture. That's what the tax collectors and sinners had come to believe. They're not worthy to be a son or a daughter of God. They've messed up too much. They've colored outside of too many lines and they've broke too many laws. And so Jesus, he's, he's reeling in the tax collectors and the sinners. And so he says, you know, I'm not worthy to be your son, but if you'll just make me like one of your hired servants. And so here was, this, here was his plan. I'm gonna work my way. I'll pay my way. You don't even have to make me a son. Don't even bring me in the house. I'll go out and live where the servants live. I'm gonna work my way. I'll pay my own way. I won't cost you anything because I have no expectation that you and I can ever be right with each other. And so Jesus, what he's about to do now, he's about to redefine God for everybody in the crowd because everybody has an expectation of what's going to happen when this kid goes back to his father. Everybody expects that the father's going to maybe even the score, maybe give a lecture, maybe publicly disown him maybe condemn him in the harshest of ways. But this is what Jesus said. So he got up and he went to his father, but while he was still away, this is the part we all remember, right? But while he was still a way off, his father saw him and was filled with, everybody say this word, compassion. It's what nobody expected. Filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son, he threw his arms around him and he kissed him and everybody's like, everybody expected Something different. But when the father sees the son coming, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees a son. He doesn't see a failure. He sees his child. And he's tearing down all of these wrong ideas about how God sees tax collectors and sinners. He had broken the rules. But here's the thing. The father, and I, I, I use this story all the time, and I tell my boys this all the time, and I've told you this, that I tell my boys this all the time. Shepherd Grayson, I want, you to look at, I want you to look at me. I want you to look at your daddy in the eyes. There's nothing you can ever do, and when I say nothing, I mean nothing. There's nothing you can ever do that you will not be loved by me, and you will not be welcome in our home. So do you really mean that because right now you're trying to come up with a scenario? No, I mean it. I, I have tried to think of any given scenario And I want that to be true. I want that to be true of how I father my sons. You you probably feel similar in the way you parent your fathers and sons. And if we are human and fall short of the standard of God, how much more does our heavenly father feel towards us when he looks at us? And this is what Jesus is trying to get them to understand. The father goes and hugs him while he's still dirty. He doesn't even have time for a shower. He hasn't got cleaned up yet. He still smells like the hogs, but his father, he doesn't care about any of that. He cares about his son. And so what does he do? He says, hey, somebody, you know, and the the son, you know, hugs him up, kisses him. The son starts his speech and the father doesn't even pay attention to him. He says, hey, somebody, bring me 
you the best road. Question, who, who did the best road belong to? The father. Bring a ring because what was on the ring? The family crest. Put it on his finger. My son's home. And somebody get some sandals and put on his feet. And somebody find that fattened calf. We're going to throw a party for this son. This son of mine was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. He's found. And he says they began to celebrate. And here's the thing about it. No waiting period. No proving period. Well, I'm going to see. I'm going to see if it sticks. I'm going to see if it's real. I'm going to see if he really has learned his lesson. Because then if he's learned his lesson, I'll take him back. If he really feels sorry, I'm going to take him back. If he's just here, you know, because he hit bottom and, and this is the easy thing, then, then I'll figure it out and then I'll know what to do. No, he, no waiting period, no proving period. The father's forgiveness was full and free. Yet not free. More on that in just a minute. So Jesus' point was this. God is the father. And for you tax collectors and sinners who've broken the rules and colored outside the lines and you've been a rebel for most of your life and you've really screwed it up, there's nothing you can do and there's no place you can go that your heavenly father is not waiting on you to come back home. And that was good news. Sin will cost you everything. That was Jesus's point. But grace will cost you nothing. So come on in. There's a place for you. And the tax collectors and the sinners, they're listening and they're like, their eyes are crossing. They've never heard anything like this before. And I imagine their hearts were burning because for people like them, they thought that God hated them and they thought that there was no place for them. And now Jesus is saying that the father's waiting and the father wants to receive them just as they are. <laughs> but it was a story about how many sons? Two. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Why? Because that's where... Elder sons tend to go. They are working in the field like good sons. How many of you all are elder brothers? You know what I know about you? Have a job. Your younger brother probably doesn't have a job. Just kidding. Although it could be true. The older brother was out in the field because he's a rule keeper. He's good at being good. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. He knew this was out of the normal. He asked somebody, he said, what in the world's going on? They said, oh, your brother was lost. He's been found. He's back. The brother that everybody thought was dead, he's alive. And your dad, your dad, your dad put a robe on him. Put the family ring on him. Put sandals. They're killing the fatted calf. There's a party. People are already gathering from the community. Come on, let's go. And everybody's thinking, okay. And, says, and the older brother became angry and refused to go in. Now, the elder brother, he represents... That group of people in the crowd that were the Pharisees and the religious people, the, the rule keepers, the people who were good, people who loved God supposedly and believed the Bible. They were the self-righteous. And the elder brother, he's self-righteous. And self-righteous people, like we talked about last week, their go-to emotion is anger. When we're self-righteous, we like to get angry at the sins of other people. So he has a smug indignation. He thinks he's better than his little brother. Can't believe what he's hearing. Can't believe his brother came back and he can't believe that his dad took him back and he can't even believe that this robe, this ring, this sandals, this calf thing, what in the world? And he refuses to go in. And a refusal to go in to a party that the father was throwing was an insult against the father. It was a public vote of no confidence in the father and the little brother by the elder brother. 
And here's the question. Maybe you've never thought about it. <laughs> Why was he angry? Other than being self-righteous, why was he angry? You ever heard the old saying, if you really want to know somebody, let money get involved? Let me tell you why he's angry. Bringing the son back in is not free. There's a price to pay for bringing the son back in. Whose robe was that going to be? Whose ring was that going to be? Whose sandals? Whose fatted calf? It was the elder brother's. And it was costing the elder brother to bring the younger brother back in. And he didn't like it. To make the younger brother a son again in an estate that's already been reduced by a third of its wealth and now to take what's been left over from the initial liquidation of a third and to slice it again and give the younger brother another third, which is what's going on here. That means that the younger brother is going to end up with half the estate that he was only supposedly legal entitled to a third of it. No wonder he's ticked off. He's losing what's his. This is costing. Because if he comes back in, it's going to be at the elder brother's expense. So the father went out and pleaded with him. He said, come on in. Come on. Your brother's back. You know, our son that we thought was dead, he's alive. So come on in. We thought he was lost, but he's back, so come on in. And the elder brother looked at the father who came out because the father wants both of them. The father wants both of them. And here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is making the most unthinkable gesture to the very people that are gonna put him to death. His greatest enemy were the Pharisees and the religious people, but here he is saying that God wants you to come in. I wanna get the younger brother and the elder brothers together. We're all gonna sit at the table with the father. That's what the father wants to come on in. And it was Jesus inviting his enemies into the party. But the elder brother, he answered the father and said, look, all these years, I've been, I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed you. I always followed your orders, but you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, when he comes back, even though he squandered it with prostitutes, you fattened the calf for him. You gave it to him. And here is the moment that Jesus says, you know what? The younger brother and the elder brother are just alike. Both of them had seen the father as a means to an end. The elder brother had only obeyed to keep the father on the string. All these years, I've done what you told me so I could get what was coming to me. And we learn that not only did the younger brother not love the father, but we learned that the elder brother doesn't love the father either. And Jesus said, you're not that different. The younger brother, unrighteous. The older brother, self-righteous. And it doesn't matter which one you are because neither one of you 
love the Father. Whew. Nobody saw that coming. And Jesus redefines what it means to be far from God. Because in the, up into that moment, everybody thought that being far from God was about breaking the rules. But now Jesus said, you can be far from God and keep the rules. Anytime you make God a means to your end, he is not your God. The end has become your God. My son, said the father, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours, but we had to. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost. Now he was found. And the father looks at the elder brother and says, you've insulted me. You've embarrassed me. Everybody knows you're not in there. Everybody knows there's something going on, but you know what? I don't care. Come on in. The father could have disowned the elder brother for such disrespect. But he said, no, I want you to come on in. How can we not celebrate? Come on now. This is your brother. He's been lost. And we found him. I'm like, me and your mom, we thought he was dead. <laughs> but he's alive, so come on in. How can you not be happy about this? And it's almost like the father saying to the elder brother, you know what? You need to go talk to your brother because you two are just alike. He thinks he's not good enough for this party and you, you think you're too good for the party. But here's what I want both you and him to know. I want you both. I want you both to come in. I want you to both sit at my table. I want you to both be in my house. I want you both in my family. Unrighteous, self-righteous. Come on in. And here was the point. Both were wrong. Both were loved. Both were invited in. So, a word for younger brothers. Maybe you identify with a younger brother. Maybe you have a hard time getting things right. You're not good at being good. You're good at being bad. For most of your life, you've colored outside the lines without even having to think about it. You failed, it's big, it's been screw up after screw up after screw up, at least that's how you feel. Maybe that's what you've been told. Maybe you were told that God, God doesn't deal with people like you, God doesn't love people like you, and when people act like you do, then you know God is just like, he doesn't care. Here's what Jesus wants to say to all the younger brothers. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, your heavenly Father is watching and waiting. And he wants you to choose. He wants you to make the choice to come back home. And you don't have to be embarrassed. And you don't have to be afraid. And there's not a lecture or I told you so waiting on the other end. There's a father who will say, that's my son. That's my daughter. And without any time to clean up, and without any time to prove yourself, he will take his arms and he'll wrap it around you. He'll kiss you and welcome you back. And he'll say, bring a robe, bring a ring, bring some sandals and somebody start the grill. Because there's a party to be had. So come on home. A word for elder brothers. Stop being self-righteous. 
Stop being angry at other people who mess up. Stop thinking that God has no place for people who are not like you. And if you're an elder brother that thinks that God owes you because you're good, to think that somehow God's going to have to let you in because you've tried to be moral and you've tried to be ethical. Jesus may be your hero. He may even be your inspiration. But if he's not your savior, you have no hope of spending eternity in the Father's house. Sin, Jesus says, isn't just breaking the rules. You can keep the rules and be far from the Father's heart. Anytime you place anything in the place of the Father, it's not the Father. And so here's what he says to elder brothers. Come on in. You need a savior too. There's nobody so bad that they can't be saved. And there's nobody so good that they need not to be saved. So I've invited the younger brothers in. Hey, older brothers, you're good at being good. You've kept the rules. You're pretty good and moral. You have been all your life. You've never really done anything big, wild, or crazy. But you still need a Savior. So come on in. That's what he's saying. And then, a word for all of us. And here it is. You. Not what you do good or bad or what you don't do good or bad are the most important thing to your heavenly father you not what you do or don't do now here's the thing this is the part that I don't want you to miss and this is the part of the story that you may never knew Jesus said it was a story about two brothers I wonder if it's really not a story about three brothers and one who isn't present Jesus had told two other stories before this story about a shepherd who left 99 sheep to go find one that was lost. He told a story about a woman who'd lost a coin. And so she turned the whole house upside down in going and searching for the coin that was lost. There's asymmetry in the third story. In the third story, nobody goes and looks for the young son. because the younger brother didn't have a true elder brother as a brother, he had a Pharisee. And Jesus tells this story to a group of biblical scholars about a story about two sons. Who were the most two famous sons in the Old Testament? Cain and Abel. And Cain had killed his brother Abel. And God had asked Cain, where's your brother? And Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? And he should have been. And in this story, there is no true elder brother because what the elder brother should have done was to look at the father and say, Dad, I see. I see how this is breaking your heart. I see how you're sitting here and all you can think about is your son that's lost. So Dad, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go after him. I'm going to bring him back. I don't care how far I have to go. I don't care what I do. I don't care how much it costs me. But I'm going to bring your son, my brother, back. That's what the elder brother should have done. But he didn't. But Jesus' point was this. There is a true elder brother. And his name is Jesus. And when the younger prodigals who broke the law and fell short, when they left the father's house, 
the true elder brother left the father's house and went in search for those who were lost. And he brought them back at his own cost. He gave his own life. He paid everything so that grace would cost us nothing. And that's the story that Jesus wants us to know. That we all have a true elder brother who left heaven. He was rejected so we could be accepted. He was hated so that we could be loved. And he bore the punishment of God so that we could be free. Heavenly Father, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. For the elder brothers that are in the room, for the elder brothers that are there in Williamsburg, and for the elder brothers that are here in the room and watching, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us as only you can. If you're a younger brother and you felt like God has no place for you, that God doesn't want you, that God hates you, Jesus said, that's not true. Jesus says, I don't know who told you that, but it's not true. There's a place for you, come home. For you elder brothers who think you've got it together, Jesus says, you don't have it together. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God and there's none good, no, not one, except for Jesus. And he became our savior. So for those of you who may be trusting in something other than Jesus to get you to heaven, to get you into a right relationship with God, Jesus says, you need a savior and I am he. So trust me, accept me. Some of you, maybe you've been in the church for many years, but you don't have a relationship with the Father. For some of you, you've been in a distant country and you don't feel like you've had a relationship with the Father. I pray in this moment that the Holy Spirit will do what only the Holy Spirit will do. If you're here and you don't have a relationship with your heavenly Father, that he will show you your need, that you are hopeless without a relationship to your heavenly Father. But in a relationship with your heavenly Father, there is life, abundant and eternal. And maybe in this moment, you feel the need to ask Christ into your heart by saying a simple prayer like this, Dear Lord Jesus, forgive me for my badness, for my goodness, for whatever it is that has kept me from you. Thank you that there is a Father that loves me as I am and invites me in. Today, I accept Jesus as my only Savior, my only hope. In Jesus' name, amen.